What's going on, sports fans, bettors, and cappers, and welcome to the Friday edition of the Competitive Hedge Podcast. I am your host of the show, Kenneth Cotterell, and thank you all for listening here today. This podcast is all about sports and the world of betting. We talk about results and headlines from the past couple of weeks before diving into today's betting slate and cap things off with maybe a couple wagers for today for you guys to take a look at. But I'm excited for today's episode. First one in a couple weeks here. We're going to talk about the John Morant suspension, a little bit about the U.S. Open, and even some footy talk as well. But I'm going to be joined today by a contributor at the Off the Ball Network. He's a diehard Texas Rangers fan. And we're going to be rivals this weekend as we have the U.S. and Canada facing off once again, this time at the CONCACAF uh, Nations League final. Welcome in, Walker Bailey, to the show. Walker, how are you doing today? Doing pretty well. Doing pretty well. I was really pleased with last night's... Uh... Last night's 3-0 win or a Trace Acero win over Mexico. Uh, first time in a really long time, if ever. I can't remember the history on that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a complete just bungalow by the end of that last night. But it was uh, it was fun to watch. Yeah, and we're definitely going to touch on both of our games from last night. But we're going to start things off with the big news that happened today. And that's with the John Morant suspension finally dropping. We knew that it was coming once the NBA Finals win is done after the Denver Nuggets won in five games over the eight-seed Miami Heat. And so Jaws getting 25 games. This is about where I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be 20 to 25. I don't think the NBA really wanted to suspend him any further. They know how much money he loses with this suspension. So what was your initial reaction to this suspension? My initial reaction was that it felt low, but then once you actually kind of read and realized all the repercussions that came with the 25 games, then I kind of was like, all right, you know, like that feels right. It feels right kind of where it should be. Uh, I thought initially that it was going to be 41. Like I thought it was going to be that arbitrary like half season mark. Um, But then kind of when the 25 came out, I'm kind of, I'm kind of good with it. Like, I think that makes sense. Uh, I'm really interested to see kind of what these like quote unquote, like, conditions are that he has to meet before he returns uh you would hope that he's able to do that but just with everything that's gone on over the last few months with him like you do have to keep in mind that those conditions are there and if anything else happens over the next you know few months or whatever then he could be back in trouble because when you think about it he's got to basically go six months without an incident which is like for most people like that would be like okay that's pretty reasonable here like i don't know man like he didn't get two months last time so um you know he's got to get to december which is when the suspension set to expire 
uh, without just without screwing up again. So I hope he gets right. I hope he gets on the path back. I hope he can mend that relationship with Adam Silver. Because I know Adam Silver deep down, like after you look in his eyes and he tells you that he's going to be better and then he turns out he's not better, uh, that, yeah, there's probably some trust that was broken there. So I hope that they can mend that relationship and he can get back to being the all-NBA-level guard that he is. That's the thing. When Jaw's out there, he's top three most exciting player to watch in the entire league, everything that he does out there. The league didn't want to suspend him. <laughs> like They wanted to do everything that they could. That's why last time it was kind of a slap on the wrist, like, hey, go to this facility for a couple of days, and then like you'll be back out there within a couple weeks. I'm okay with 25 games as well. Uh, I understand why people may have wanted it to be a bit more, but at the end of the day... <laughs> NBA has got to treat it like a business at the same time. Like Memphis fans are, are not going to be happy if they don't have their star player for let's say half the season. Cause I think that's what a lot of people were expecting was the 40 game mark, but I'm okay with it. Uh, the players union is not, they, they sound very unhappy and I, I get why they put out the statement that they did. They're kind of just wondering like us, okay, what are these, what are these additional things that jaw has to do? in order to get back out there. Because if it was just 25 games, we'll see you on X date, then I think it probably would have gone over okay. But but I think these additional things that could be on top of it is what's going to hold it back a bit. I know, and I just – but, like, at the same time, you look at the Players Association and you're like, look, especially in America in the year 2023, like, you do understand how stupid this is and how many chances we've given him. Yeah. Him to not do this over and over and over again, right? Like, there's just like they, I think they called it like harsh and unre- too harsh or excessively harsh and unreasonable or something like that. And like, I don't know how you arrive at that conclusion after everything that's gone on the last few months. And you know, gun safety has been such a thing in America these days that I don't know how you watch Jaw do that and be so irresponsible with firearms and then come away with they didn't even give him half a season, like. He basically got like a, a little over a quarter of a season and he won't be eligible for all NBA teams. And that'll cost him a lot of money. But this also, it's not also not like this is the first time it's happened. And this is the initial punishment. They gave him a pretty brief, like two week hiatus where he checked himself in to rehab for like six hours and then got out and went back and played basketball. Like this isn't the first time, like this is a repeat offense. And at some point you have to send a message that, stuff like this just isn't acceptable because optically the the league is trying to get away from that sort of image we saw exactly what happened after the malice at the palace with the dress code and everything of they tried to get away from that kind of quote-unquote gangster mentality that they had back then and when you have one of your star guys waving around a gun on instagram live yeah it wasn't illegal what he was doing necessarily but at the same time you got millions of kids following you on social media and they see that sort of stuff and they think it's okay. So I get why they made the decision that they did. Um, I think 25 is fine. Obviously he loses out on all NBA, but at the end of the day, he made that decision and he's got to live with it. And it's not as if he's not making good money. (laughs) Like jaw is going to be fine financially moving forward. So long as he actually cleans it up, as you said, in six months' time, if, if this happens again, like the league's gonna have no choice. It's gonna be a full year. It's gonna be it's gonna get wild at that point. But 
maybe this is the wake-up call that he needed because the suspension the first time around was, wasn't harsh enough. As you said, it was like six hours in a facility, and then suddenly he's out and playing basketball again. Once you start affecting guys' money, and this is major money that he's going to be losing out on, I think that's going to be what ultimately gets through to him. Hopefully. I mean, that's what you hope. And hopefully he comes back and makes the Grizzlies an attraction again because, like, and he's going to have to mend that relationship with his teammates. Like, at some point, yeah. it's like, dude, like, we could be on the road in the first round of the playoffs because you can't, you know, you can't listen to rap music without pulling out a firearm. Like, get it together. <laughs> like, well, figure- I guess, where does this put Memphis next year? Because I, I was thinking about this today. I was looking at their contract situation. Really, the only guy off the books from last year's team is Dylan Brooks. What other moves can you really make? Because this feels got- like doesn't this feel like the cash the chips trade where they're like, all right, like we know we're not going to have jaw. So we're going to go get like OG on and and like significantly upgrade that small forward role and like, and then put Tyus in the starting lineup. And like, cause you know, last year they basically maintained the same record they had with jaw when Tyus yeah. started, like Jaron Jackson just took a bigger role. Like Bain took a bigger role and it wasn't ideal, but they made it work. And so I think, Maybe this is one of those where you go and they finally cash the chips and go get OG and slide him in and replace Dylan Brooks that way where you upgrade that position, Tyus comes in, and you keep the ship afloat as a top, you know, probably a top four seed in the West, closer to three or four. Um, but three, you're a top three to four team in the West. And then Ja comes back and it's like, all right, we've still got home court in this first round. And as you saw in the West this year, really the seed is just a number once the playoffs start. So – um because that's the thing that they're not going to be an active free agency team but they're going to be an active trade team and 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 they're not a destination and like if you're a free agent even with like all the good players you have people aren't like just uh, like i can go to i can go to houston or i can move to memphis and it's like that's not like you know me dumping on memphis but it's just like they've never been a free agent destination they had to give chandler parsons that ludicrous contract just to get him to sign in memphis um so i think that that's one of those where if you're gonna do it this feels like the off season where you cash the chips you have to go add another player that raises your floor raises your ceiling they've also got to go get someone that can knock down shots like because desmond Bain is really the only like active really good three-point shooter on that roster luke Kennard, but you don't want to like that's a bench role player, man. Like that's someone yeah. that's going to come in, maybe knock down a few shots, but there's also going to be nights where he's unplayable because he can't guard anybody. Well, um, that's the thing is, is he's one of those contracts where if they are going to go out and make moves, he's going to have to be a part of it because he's due like 15 million a year. As you yep. said, role player, good three point shooting role player, but do you really want to be paying him that kind of money when you already have to pay Bain, you've got to pay Jackson, you've got to pay, like, I just I don't want them to go out and think that they have to panic at the point guard spot because I think you and I are equally high on Tyus Jones. I think he can get the job done for the first 25 games, and then he's a very high-level backup, if not low-level starter in the league or mid-level starter in the league. So I think that they have the players in order to do it. They still have some young guys that they could potentially throw in to a trade as well to Sweden. You mentioned OG. I think that's a great fit. That's exactly what they need. They do need a little bit of perimeter defense because let's face it, as much as we love making fun of Dylan Brooks, he was a very hard worker on the defensive end at yep. the wing spot. So you he have to find somebody that can throw it. He made an all-defense team this year. Like, you yep. know, we can laugh at him or whatever, but he did that. Yeah. Um, 
We're going to so, give him a hard time because he called out LeBron like other players haven't called out LeBron in the past. As foolish as it is, guys get wrapped up in it and it happens. When you really look, when you really dumb it down, if you want to, just statistically, like Dylan Brooks and OG Ananobi both made all defense last year. The difference is OG Ananobi shot 39% from three. Yeah. Like, see, so he, he's going to be like a legit sniper. And so when you add that around Ja, like that's going to elevate everybody. That allows Jaron to maybe not have to be on the perimeter so much because they don't need him to shoot as many perimeter shots. That allows, you know, Ja more space in the lane because you can't really just leave OG open the way you could leave Dylan open and Dylan would shoot his way through a two for 15. Like OG's not going to go two for 15. No. And so to me, that that fixes a lot. I know that the price is really high. And like today you get the report that like now even teams like the Pacers are in on OG, like they're interested or whatever. I know the price is going to be high, but in the end, like, you know, draft picks are cool, but as a friend of mine says, flags fly forever, like banners fly forever. Yeah. And you have these two or three really young talents that are good enough to get you there. You have to maximize this and try to hang and try to hang banners. And the thing is, if you bring in OG, it's it's a friendly contract, at least for this year. He'll be due more money in the future. At his position, two ways, he's top 10 in the league mm-hmm. because he's he's a guy that doesn't need to shoot 20 times to be effective. Like OG is going to shoot 12 times and he's going to make seven of them. And you're going to feel good about that because he's playing great defense on the other end and can knock down shots. He's the perfect fit to add with these three guys that they have. There's maybe a couple other guys out there that they could potentially look at, but I, I agree. In the Western Conference, yes, Denver looks dominant in the playoffs, but a lot of things happened in the West this year that that really made it an easier path for Denver. Like Phoenix yeah. going after KD, but cleaning out their entire bench in order to do it and getting limited time with Booker. Like stuff like that matters come playoff time. And so, well, and then like, and think about it really. Like these teams that play in the finals really, really have hard times in November and December because their off seasons are so much shorter. And like. Yeah. I know the Jokic thing kind of got glossed over and it was just kind of funny and like we all laughed, but like there probably is some truth in what he's saying. A lot of these guys are going to be exhausted. None of those guys have played like that level of basketball for that long ever. And so I think that you're presented with an opportunity to where like, hey, we can go and become, you know, Memphis was a two seed this year. We can go and make a run at that same spot if because Denver may struggle early, like with as much as, as much stuff as they had to go through. They may struggle early. Like it's open to where we can go position ourselves for a high seed. And if you just and if you don't do that and cash the chips and build your roster and continue to advance it, then you're then you're looking at like being like that five to seven seed where maybe you end up in the play in because like Jaw's also been one that's missed games anyway, just for injuries and stuff. Yeah. Like just because he's missing twenty five games doesn't mean he's gonna come back and play the other fifty seven. Like, he's probably only playing 45 games next year, 50 games next year, or whatever it's going to be. And so, well, especially since he's out of conversation for all NBA, there's not going to be pressure for him to get those games in in order to have that opportunity. So, if you're be, Memphis and you're the third seed down the stretch, you're probably not playing Jaw 35 minutes a night heading into the playoffs. You're going to sit him a couple nights, and he's going to, as you said, play 45, 50 games. Right, and so that's why I think you have to go get a guy like OG who can be your fourth scoring. He can be your fourth scoring option, reliable shot maker, um, spaces the floor, which is going to help when you have Stephen Adams back. Which that's a big thing for Memphis. They missed Stephen Adams at the end of the year. They needed that enforcer, yeah. um, that kind of physical dominant rebounding presence. 
So hopefully get him healthy. Um, and then I would, I would move for OG and then kind of just run out that, you know, when everything is right and everybody's healthy, you run out job Bain, Ananobi, Jaron and Adams and see where you get. And that's the thing is if they don't make a move, we've already heard rumors of Bradley Beal and there's the potential interest in a team like Sacramento, like, Sacramento's an up-and-coming team. Yes, the Lakers are old. Yes, Golden State's getting old. But there's teams that are coming, and it's not just Memphis. And so if they're content on getting eliminated in the first round, maybe conference semis, then they can roll out this same group again and then get bounced. Or if they go and add a guy like OG, then we maybe start talking about them as real contenders in the West because I don't think many people considered them real contenders this, this year. Yeah. I think it's an, I think it's incredibly interesting how the market just doesn't believe in Sacramento. Even after watching them, you know, down the stretch or whatever, like even though they got beat in the first round, just watching that team play, like it's wild to me that that team was a three seed last year and the sixth seed that they played against was minus 300 against them in a playoff series. I mean, that's, that's what happened. And so I like, I want to, I don't know if they don't buy like the Fox. I don't know what it is. I, yeah. I really don't because, like, if you look at the odds for next year, they're thirty to one to win the the NBA title next year, and it's like that feels incredibly high. Like, it's just like, and I don't know what it is. Like, the market just doesn't buy Sacramento, and I really don't know what the reason for that is. And given the fact that you said it's thirty to one right now, if they're in on Beal, then it might be worth a look right now because the second they sign a guy like Beal, let's say, or make a trade for a guy like Beal those odds probably drop closer to it, uh, 15 to one at DraftKings in the, in the U S Sacramento is 50 to one to win the NBA title. Next year. <laughs> and that's they, just it. They have the same odds as the Knicks and worse odds than the Pelicans and the Cavs and worse odds than the Mavericks are 17 to one. So if you're looking for value, that's definitely one to take a look at knowing that they're going to be a team that's trying to buy and there's going to be some teams that are looking to make some moves, but it's going to be exciting. We got the draft coming up this week as well. You're a Spurs fan, so Wemby at one. I'm excited for you to, to you get see, here. I, I think I sent it in the chat last night. I'm actually going to miss the draft. Like, I have to coach <laughs> basketball that night. Like, I'm not even going to be in a, on the couch. Um, I, I think the draft starts at 7 o'clock our time, and we play at 6.20 an hour from my house. So I think we're going to play, and we'll get done right around the time the draft starts. And I'm basically going to, like, kind of look at the guys and be like, all right, deuces, I got to go. And, like, kind of <laughs> car and and try to get back i told i think i said last night my goal is to get back for pick 33 which is our second round pick which it helps not like there being no drama who they're going to take in the first round where you don't have any anxiety about it you're just like all right whatever they're going to draft Wimby. he's going to hold the jersey up and him and adam silver are going to hug and do whatever and that's good i don't need to see it and and that's the thing it would have been a lot worse if the spurs were sitting at like four or five because oh my then God, there would have been so if I'm a Rockets fan and we're six days out, the anxiety is just like, and like, cause they're like, I think it's almost one of those worst kept secrets. It almost like I've almost in pencil, like written that James Harden is going to be on the Rockets next year. Like that feels like something that's just going to happen. And I'm just like, Oh my God, we're going to pay, pay Harden. See what would be really funny is, is they're going to pay Harden to come in and play point guard and then draft a point guard at four. And then just tell him to come off the band. <laughs> like they're just oh my goodness. Next level, next level, uh, next level franchise building. We're gonna draft a kid at four and tell him to come off the bench. <laughs> oh 
Oh, uh, I, I, I have a good buddy of mine that's a Rockets fan. I can't wait for draft night to see how he's going to react to whatever they decide to make with that. We'll have to, we'll have to talk as we get closer to time about draft props, maybe sometime next week. Um, like I'm really going to be interested once we get more, like, I, I don't know how it is there. We've gotten some numbers here where like, I've gotten like weird random players where I can get their draft props, but, um, yeah, like, I'll be really interested to just kind of see like Bilal Kulabali's draft prop is 11 and a half. And to me, that's like, all right, mock drafts have him at 27. So Vegas knows something um, like case and Wallace, 12 and a half. Um, yeah. Like I'm just kind of looking kind of as we go. One that I would play right now based on stuff I've heard. Kobe, or, uh, not Kobe Bufkin, uh, Keontae George under 13 and a half. I think is a it's plus two fifteen as it stands at my book right now. Um, I think he is the selection at eleven for Orlando. If Orlando keeps that pick and he's on the board, well, if he's off the board, he won anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if he gets if it gets to eleven and Keontae is on the board and Orlando is still making the pick, then I think Keontae is the pick. Yeah, it's definitely something that I'm going to keep an eye on. I think that's going to be our two hundredth episode of the show is going to be some NBA draft props as we head into the summertime. So can't wait for the for the draft coming up here. But let's talk about what's happening right now, which is the U.S. Open. Um, lower numbers than you're expecting from a U.S. Open typically because when you've had 162 in the history of major championship golf and then you get 262s on the exact same day between Ricky Fowler and Xander Shoffley, then maybe the course isn't living up to what we expect of a U.S. Open course. So I know you said you've been a little bit limited in what you've been able to watch, but what are your thoughts when you see two guys coming right out of the gate shooting an eight under at what is supposed to be and typically is the hardest golf tournament in the world to win? Well, I was about to say I double-checked the calendar and made sure that I was like, wait, hold on, <laughs> like making sure that the U.S. Open was being played. But um, that's one of those where like you almost wonder if that's the type of thing that rules out a lot of people down the stretch because they're definitely going to make the course harder. Like, I mean, I'm sure the USGA probably angrily stormed in last night and was like, what the hell was that? Um, and made the course harder, but like they can't take away those birdies that have already been made. Like they're already in the cup. So you do wonder how much, like if Ricky, if Ricky and Xander just simply play, you know, one under two under for the rest of the tournament, how many people are actually going to be able to catch them? I think I'm kind of quietly cheering for those guys. And then I won't forget Wyndham Clark, who's also eight under. You know, if those guys can maybe play back to seven, I think we could shape up and have a really, really fun finish to the weekend because you just kind of look um, – you kind of look at it and it's like, all right, you know, Cam Smith's down there. Tony Finau's kind of hunting. Scotty Scheffler's going to hunt. Bryson uh, DeChambeau's going to hunt. Uh, Rory's at five under now. You know, there's a lot of guys on that uh, – that would be in that kind of final stretch run that would make this tournament a lot of fun to watch. I think that's the thing is that there was a number of years ago where you had the winner at plus one and everyone complained on Saturday. And granted that Saturday at Shinnecock was pretty wild, just how poorly the course was because it was actually unplayable. But historically in the last 12 years, you've had three times where it's gone 10 under plus is the winner. So it's not unheard of. And I don't want to give LA country club a bad rap because 
I actually think that there's a lot of exciting holes to this U.S. Open. Like the part three that they were playing yesterday where they're having to play it into a side slope and just have it bounce into the green. And it's like a 260-yard shot. Like to me, that's that's just a fun golf hole to watch as a viewer. This down the stretch holes, that's, as I said in my preview, that's going to be where it's won and lost because you've got three straight par fours all over 490 yards to get the rough grown out. And maybe a guy has a lead by one or two heading into those final three shots on Sunday. And suddenly he hits it in the rough and we're looking at doubles and triples. And we even saw today DJ was up near the top. What did he do? He took a quad on the second hole and he kind of shot himself in the foot. Now he's played himself back to a point where he's going to probably go into the weekend completely fine. But I don't like when we, yes, the U S open should be the hardest open to win outside of maybe the British if you get a really rainy, windy week. But this doesn't mean that it's a bad tournament because we've got guys at eight under. And I think that's where I saw a lot of takes over the last 24 hours or so where it's like, really, this is the course that this is what we're playing for the U.S. Open. Like at a certain point, we have to open it up to some more courses across the United States because we even hear it all the time, even the regular tour events that they play aren't at some of the best golf courses in the United States. Like they're, they're PGA, they're TPC courses for a reason. It doesn't mean that they're playing the best tournaments in the whole U S. So I'm glad that we saw a couple of low numbers. I could take or leave Ricky. Like I know that there's going to be people that really are rooting for him and that's fine. And if he wins, I'm not going to be upset that Ricky Fowler finally got his first major. It's probably seven years too late from what we were expecting of him wouldn't be upset if Xander won either obviously I've got money on guys like Homa so I hope that he has a great afternoon I hope that DeChambeau has a great afternoon because I've got money there but I look at the leaderboard right now and it's a good mix of really good guys some mid-tier guys as well and I think we're shaping up for a good weekend do you think that it's maybe being blown a little bit out of proportion just the scoring in general, just because it is the U.S. Open? feels like it's way too early to say, right? Like, it feels like you have to wait until after, like, wait until Saturday where you kind of look back and it's like, all right, like, if we're at Saturday and it's we're going into Sunday and guys are 12 and 13 under going into Sunday, then, yeah, we can make that judgment. But, you know, right now it was basically just two rounds. Like, two. well, not really. It was, I mean, it was a full day of low scoring, but if the course corrects itself and this thing still gets decided basically at, you know, 10 under or less, then it feels like it's still played like a U.S. Open. It just maybe played as like a little bit higher scoring U.S. Open. Like it wouldn't be just unprecedented for it to play for a tournament to play like that at the U.S. Open. Um, well, so, even look at last year. So after round one last year, leaders at minus four. So maybe it's a little bit more normal to have a, a leader go out and shoot minus four. But the winning score is minus six last year. <laughs> so you head into the weekend and then the course corrects itself guys on Saturday really struggled to score. And then on Sunday, there's a couple guys that shoot some low numbers and then you get that minus six finish. So let's say it's minus eight right now. And we have something similar winners minus 11 minus 12. That doesn't mean that like the course wasn't difficult enough. Like guys on tour, some weeks are winning at minus 22. We're not going to act like this isn't a, a tough golf course right, right. now. But I think it's it's this allure of, oh, like the winner has to be even par in order for it to be like a really good U.S. Open course. And I like watching the the best players in the world struggle like the next guy. But 
I also don't think it's very fun when you get that plus five finish, like when there's no birdies being made and it's right. just grinding it out. So you want to give them the ability to make the really tough shots, but like it create it also creates those opportunities for like those those memorable shots. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, like when they were at I guess it was at Tory Pines a few years ago, and like yeah, it was a drivable par four, but like Morikawa won like won a tournament by hitting an insane drive on a par four, like. Like having those abilities or those opportunities is not a bad thing. It's just you don't want to make it. You don't want it to play like every other weekend, um, but you also don't want to be on the other end of the spectrum where it's like, all right, you know, bogey's a good score on every hole today because the course is so tough. Like, um, I think you know, I think it'll get tougher as the weekend goes, and we'll look back and it'll basically just be kind of a nothing burner. Like we'll look back and be like, you know what, it was all good. Yeah, exactly, and I'm. Um... I like the layout of it. I think there's some fun holes. I think that's what it's all about. It's for the, the viewer's entertainment. Like, yes, it's not a part of the rotation, whereas, like, when you watch Tory Pines, you remember moments from previous U.S. Opens at Tory Pines. But that doesn't mean that it's a bad track, and I don't want it to, to be viewed that way because a couple of guys just played some really good golf yesterday and scored really well. Like, I'm sorry that Ricky made 10 birdies yesterday and had – one of the better rounds that you'll see at a major, but sometimes that happens with guys. We saw Shane Lowry a number of years ago shoot like a crazy low number at, at a major, and it's like I didn't mean that the course wasn't tough because everyone else was 68, 69. It just meant that a guy had it going that day. But let's let's chat now about CONCACAF Nations League because Canada and the U.S., the two best teams in CONCACAF right now, I think would be fair to say are uh, are going to square off in the final on Sunday. So the U.S. yesterday, they won 3 to nothing. Very ugly down the stretch, but a dominant performance from the U.S. nonetheless. So you're the American here today. What were your thoughts on the game yesterday outside of the, the craziness at the end? Well, it was a B.J. Callahan tactical masterclass. <laughs> and I, as, I, as I tweeted last night, you know, in the U.S., it was – like that level of tactical masterclass, which by that, I mean, playing your best players, um, it goes unseen quite often. Like you don't really see managers decide to play the really good players and not play the other ones. So, you know, the U S finally did that last night and, you know, U S and Mexico always carries a little bit heavier meaning than a lot of the other CONCACAF matches, uh, for Americans. And so, it was really the most thoroughly dominant performance I've seen from them in a match like that in a long time. So I thought like, I mean, the scoreline wasn't really deceiving at all. Like I felt like it was a pretty fair scoreline. Like the U S dominated possession, like they had really, really good opportunities multiple times. You know, a few of those went by the wayside, like Pulisic in the first half comes to mind. And then, you know, they really just didn't give up any high grade quality chances. I don't think Matt Turner made a save until like the 79th minute or something like that. Um, where he kind of saved a header that may or may not have been on target, but he just saved it anyway. <laughs> um, so, you know, Mexico really did not have anything, uh, didn't, wasn't able to generate any chances. And it was just really, really rare. Like the U.S. was just like faster, more talented, yeah. played better, like all of it. Like they just absolutely tormented Mexico on the wings last night. Like Timmy Wea, Christian Pulisic all just dominated on those wings and created chances and, you know, were able to get uh, get into the box and, you know, play balls back in or, you know, cut it back inside and find ways to get shots on target. Um, you know, Mexico's pretty fortunate that it wasn't worse. 
And so I think that they probably know that, and that's why they decided to start trying to kill everybody on the pitch for the last 20 minutes. Um, you know, the Bolligan, the Bolligan foul was legitimately despicable. Like, yeah. he just tracks back, slides in front of the guys, like, all right, you know, I'm going to win the ball. And instead of trying to win the ball, he just, like, rears back and kicks him in the, like, kicks him in the shin. And it's like, how about winning that, bud? Yeah. And I was just like, all right, like, you know, it's very clear that they're, they're in shambles and there's not a clear direction for that federation. And I don't know that those older players, older, they just, they're having a hard time coping and that they're getting passed by. And I think that that's true of the U S I think that's true of Canada. Like I think both those teams are passing them by, um, you know, I think Panama with all those players on red card are probably actually going to give them a push in the third place game. Um, we'll see. I mean, I, I think that it was, Fun to watch, and then it just became completely unhinged for the last 20 to 25 minutes, and and that was kind of tough to watch. But also, I couldn't take my eyes off of it. (laughs) Yeah, like the first Mexico red yesterday, it reminded me of when you're playing FIFA and you're down 3-0 online. And you just just... tackle the guy in the back of the legs, yeah. (laughs) And then you just just quit out because you're just like, you know what, like I just took that red, like it's clear that this game's over. Congrats, (laughs) Congrats, bud, you got me. But you to watch it in real life was just like, it was wild to me that it was such a horrendous challenge. And it's so unfortunate for the States now because now they're sitting on two guys on reds that, don't deserve reds in the broader scheme of things because it's like that's so clearly just like dirty play and they're obviously going to stand up for their guy and it could have even been a lot worse for mexico yesterday i felt like there almost could have been a couple more cards brandished well and if you think about it too like psychologically like Bolligan takes a foul like that and hits his first ever cap with the u.s which like bold move by bj callahan man like hey but i'm gonna put you in a uniform and not only that but your first start ever is going to be in u.s mexico have fun and he takes that foul and so like some of those older guys probably felt responsibility like all right man like that's our new young striker like we're fixing to go to we're fixing to go to battle for this guy and so you know show him show him that he's a member of the team or whatever prove to him that he belongs and so i don't know like i i just thought mexico let it get away from him and then the fans started throwing stuff on the field which is par for the course um you know it was just really ugly i hope conga calf I don't know, punishes them. Maybe they should, maybe, maybe they can take their spot out of just with make them withdraw from Copa America. That'll show them. Well, and that's the thing. It's a federation that's coping with the fact that they're getting passed by, by one country that they've been pretty on par with for the last couple of decades, but one country that had no business being on the pitch with Mexico for the last 15 years up until a couple of years ago. And now Canada passing them of all nations. I think it's, as you said, it's it's got past them a bit. Um, the slurs and everything that came out after that, like it's just, it's a country that's not coping well with the fact that they're not no longer the kings of CONCACAF because it yeah. felt like for a long time. Because, I mean, that's also the rivalry of CONCACAF. Mexico-US is the rivalry because they've been the two best federations for a long time. Well, I mean, and this is now a six match. Un- it's either six or nine matches unbeaten for the U S against Mexico where like even the trips to the Azteca Mexico's not winning those anymore. Like the U S is just, they've just handled them. And so I think that that's one of the, I, and I thought hurt Gomez made a good point last night. The U S and Canada have done a really good job at allocating their money and really, really investing for decades on end into their player development. 
where like their players are getting better and like people around their country are getting better. And so in turn, their player pools are becoming a lot more competitive. I think the U.S. started a little earlier than Canada, which is why you're seeing their quote unquote golden generation show up now. Whereas like Canada probably still has a lot of room for like, they're still going to get better and better and better. Um, And Mexico like hasn't invested that money back into player development. They've lined their own pockets of their executives and stuff like that. And so with that being the case, when you don't commit to winning the same way these other two countries have committed to winning, then yeah, that's what happens. Like the other teams are going to win more than you. Well, and that's the thing is then then you look at Canada. Obviously, they they get Panama. They they avoid the the kind of two three or one three matchup that it was last night. And David had a nice goal early on. He's in great form. He wasn't at the World Cup, so it's nice to see him at least starting to show up a bit more for Canada. And then they bring on Davies, and he gets a through ball and absolutely rifles one into the roof of the net. So. I mean, it's a convincing win for Canada. It's one that, let's face it, they should win those matches. And I think that they're at the level now where there was many years there where you would see Panama and you'd be like, oh, I don't know. Oh, like Panama, you'd, in that road trip to Panama or Jamaica, wouldn't, it, it would be a little uneasy. You would be you like, get oh. Honduras on the schedule and you're like, oh, boy, like, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know if they can go and get a result. And, and now it feels like they're at a point where you feel comfortable when they get that matchup. And a lot of it has to do with Davies, but I think that the team itself is getting a little bit more well-rounded. I've said for a long time, they got to get some midfielder development because that's truly where they lost it. Playing countries like Croatia and Belgium, where the quality in the midfield was just there. and Where you have the guys that Canada's starting go, trying to stop Kevin De Bruyne and Luka Modric. Yeah, and you're like, oh boy, this is going to be a long day, so... If they can develop a couple midfielders, I think the back line's okay. Borjan made a couple of nice saves. I still can't stand him as a keeper, but I oh, feel like... Uh, yeah, I guess. I was about to ask if he was going to start on Sunday. I guess he is. So I, he, always uh, level, he always levels up tenfold whenever he plays the U.S. Yeah, he, he, made, he made a couple saves yesterday where I was impressed, but then after his World Cup performance, I was a little bit on edge with him ever starting a game for Canada. Do they, do they have like a weird do they have like a weird performance tomorrow night with it being their first chance at a trophy in like almost a quarter century? Like do they almost play with that World Cup level of nerves or do they just kind of let it go and let so, it all hang out? So let's talk about the odds around it because we were kind of looking at these before we went live. Now, U.S. obviously pretty – I shouldn't say pretty heavy favorite, but plus 115. Canada's sitting at plus 250. Um, the Vegas is clearly viewing it low scoring because under two and a half is minus 190. Um, I think we see what we saw in World Cup qualifying when these two faced off, which is U.S. is probably going to have 60% possession, maybe 65. Canada's going to park the bus a little bit, and then they're going to try and counter. Um, I think if the U S can contain Davies, then that's going to shut down pretty much everything that Canada is going to want to do because anytime they get the ball, that's who they're looking for. They're looking for him to be the guy to make the plays. And it is nice having a guy like David up front, but I just don't know when you've got Pulisic in the midfield and a lot of other talented guys, then I think it's going to be tough for them. What are your thoughts of the, of the final? I think I really just think the U S's experience is going to help them so much here. But I think in these finals where it's so it's so unpredictable because you get into these spots where every shot is so important. Like every like, you know, all it takes is one slip up from either side. And I think that's kind of the match you're looking at here with with these groups where you're like, all right, 
you know, one Borjan mistake and it's one nil us and we're chasing the and Canada's chasing the match. And that's probably not where they want to go. Whereas you could get, you know, one Matt Turner mistake or one, you know, one really, really clumsy challenge from two from a center back for the U S and like Canada's taking a penalty and like you're chasing the match. Like, and I think in these spots, that's so like, it's so hard to like really, really kind of make bets on, who's going to make that mistake. And, you know, the U.S.'s experience will be really helpful in the front, but when you look at their back line, the only player in that back four that's going to have competed, like, in a match like this is going to be uh, Anthony Robinson because they're going to start uh, more than likely, I would guess they're going to start, like, Chris Richards and Miles Robinson at the back. And if that's the case, like, Chris Richards didn't even make the World Cup roster because he was out injured. Miles Robinson, the same. He had a torn Achilles. Um, and so, and then obviously Serginio Des taking the red card last night. So you're going to have like 20 year old Joe Scally trying to stop Alfonso Davies, like good luck. So I, I think that the Americans experience at the front will help them attacking. I think Canada is going to put 10 behind the ball and probably basically sit in a low block and try to play out, which, you know, the U S and world cup qualifying last year had really hard times with that, but then they got into the world cup and played Iran who did the same thing and they were able to break it down find good opportunities, slot one home, and Iran never really had a chance to score. So I, I hope that that trend continues where they continue to play better against those low blocks and those teams that sit in because, you know, that's what the Netherlands did, except just with the more extreme quality. Like they very, very convincingly said, all right, you know what? Like, you know, England, these teams in the group made the mistake of like giving, you know, taking the ball like the u.s basically said all right you know you can have the ball we'll play we'll kind of play out we're not going to sit in a low block but you know if you have more of the possession we're fine like we'll play out yeah. and, and create our chances that way and you know van gaal finally was like you know what we haven't seen yet let's give them the ball and they gave the u.s the ball and just were absolutely clinical and counterattack. and like canada has the quality to replicate that like Alfonso Davies is world-class Jonathan David is class like both those players are really really capable so I think the U.S. are going to have to be really really careful and not granted it's tactical it's tactical genius BJ Callahan and not triple G on the sideline so hopefully BJ maybe is a little bit more or a little less inept um but I mean that's just something like even last night on the desk Clint Dempsey and um and the other guy were kind of like, yeah, no, like, you know, Greg did a great job getting the most out of this. But when we went to the World Club, World Cup, he pretty much got out coached in every single game. Um, but they rehired him anyway. Um, so that's one of the take note takes notes and watches the World Cup. It's like, all right, here's what the U.S. had issues doing. Let's replicate this and we'll have a fighting chance. So Yeah. I, I think the final t- on Sunday is going to be a lot of fun. I think we're both in agreement that in order for both of these nations to take the next step, they really have to beef up their friendly schedule. They got to start taking on more world-class teams. And because before it was like, okay, we could set up a nice Mexico friendly and it's fine. But we now know that we're past where Mexico's at right now. So if you're wanting to, we know that the host countries are in 2026, you got to, you got to, play more quality teams because yes david we mentioned and uh alfonso like they they get to play the best teams in europe but that's two guys for Four canada get to play the best teams in europe 
<laughs> no, he, he does not. And so you look at when you only have two guys that are playing that kind of competition, um, the entire nation needs to needs to get that experience. And I think that that's something that they're going to look to in the future. I think it's going to be a great final. I do think that it's going to be low scoring. I think Vegas has it bang on. It's going to be one nil, maybe two nil final for. I saw the most likely, country. like I was looking at exact scores and the way they were priced and the lowest exact score price was the U S to win one nil. Like that was, they basically think that the U S is going to struggle to break down the low block and that they'll finally punch one through and they, and that the U.S.'s defense will do enough to limit Canada. I don't know. And I saw that both teams to score the no was minus 135. I don't, I, you know, I really could see this thing going 1 1 to extra time. Like I could see Canada breaking one, you know, get, breaking a counterattack early and then really sitting back and the U.S. maybe getting a late goal to tie it and then getting into extra time. And then who knows from there, really. But, um, yeah, I may look, and especially at the prices, I may look at like a Canada to score first, um, just maybe where they kind of get one of those early counterattacks and test that young defense, that young, young inexperienced defense, where um, Canada maybe finds an early goal or something like that. Um, but I mean, yeah, other than that, it's kind of hard. Like, it's kind of hard to find just a ton of value. A lot of these, a lot of these lines feel really right. Like. You know, the U.S. draw no bets minus 185 on my book. That feels about right. Um, it feels I, – I, I have a hard time finding the path to Canada winning in regulation. It yeah, would feel yeah. like the path that I laid out, except the U.S. just never finds the late goal. Um, yeah. It would feel like they just never break down the low block, which, I mean, has happened in the past. Like, when you look at friendlies, I think Morocco and Japan both beat them prior to the World Cup doing stuff like that. So, it wouldn't – I mean, it wouldn't be just unheard of. So, are you going to bet the other one? Are you going to bet the third place game? I don't think I will. Um, I think that I think there is value bet, in Panama. Panama. I think I'm betting Panama money line out of principle. <laughs> you know what? Given the red cards, it might just be worth a sprinkle just for fun. I don't think it'll be an official. Uh, this will be an off the books hedge play, but I do think that uh, just strictly Listen, for man, the they're last, plus, they're plus four twenty five. Like I'm going to take. I think I'm going to take a shot. <laughs> Okay, that, that one might be worth a look for me then for the third place one. But let's chat about today's bets as well. We'll cap things off. Um, as I said at the start, you're a Rangers fan. If you're at home, you're taking on the Jays tonight. Jays are minus 145 right now. So do you like them at plus money tonight at home? No, the Jays are going to yeah. win tonight. Jays um, are going to win tonight? Okay. I think so, yeah. And I think I think you could look at some spreads. I mean, it's just a tough matchup for the Rangers. Like, Perez is your worst starter. He's coming off multiple bad starts. He's had trouble finding it. Um, he really doesn't have any overpowering stuff. The Jays are really good against lefties. Um, and so if he has to, you know, unless he gets a bad umpire tonight that's going to give him, you know, a few inches off the plate – then he's going to have to come with pretty subpar stuff to a pretty potent offensive lineup. Um, so and then you get Gaussman. What are thoughts then on Rangers plus one and a half at minus one thirty? Or are you just fading all together? I think I'm like staying away. Like I, sure. I really think I really think that the Jays kind of win and potentially win big. And I think maybe tomorrow, I think maybe tomorrow is where you kind of come back and you look at the Rangers at like minus. I think they open to minus one ten tomorrow. And I think that's one where you could come back and be like, all right, we're going to back from Texas tomorrow, maybe. Yeah, my Red Sox got the Yankees tonight. Um, Red Sox are actually minus 125 with Hauk going. I kind of like the Yankees actually on the road for this one. Um, Hauk hasn't got a lot of uh, support throughout the, the year from the bats. So 
I kind of like Yankees on the road. That would be one, an early lean. What's your favorite one tonight? I actually, um, it's kind of funny you mentioned that. I actually kind of go the other way on that. I kind of really? like back the Red Sox. Yeah, I'm not, yeah. I'm not a buyer in this Domingo Herman uh, Renaissance or whatever they want to call it. Like, I'm not just completely convinced that he's become like a three, four, nine, like dominant starter. And when you dive into his analytics and stuff, um, all his expected stats basically have him as a mid four ERA pitcher, which is obviously not what he's been right now. And so. I think that maybe he's due for a little regression. You get into a hitter's park in Fenway. Um, it's a rivalry game, so you don't really have to worry about Boston coming flat. I think Halleck will pitch well here. Um, if I remember right, his home road splits, he pitches pretty well at Fenway where he doesn't pitch just, just too too terribly well away from home. So I think I'm, I think the Red Sox there. Um, another one I like tonight, if you want like a little plus money dog, I think that we're getting a, an Astro skid here. I think going and backing the Reds on the road uh, against JP France, who is an absolute pumpkin uh, of a starter. Um, I think that the Reds' new exciting lineup should be able to get to him. Talk about another offensive ballpark where some of those hitters can really take advantage, of like stuff like the Crawford boxes. Um, and then they've got a shorter porch in right field. So I think um, I think that you could easily go and look at the Reds and probably maybe like a Reds team total over. I played the Reds straight up at plus 140. Uh, I didn't even really mess around with spreads or whatever. I just kind of felt like uh, I think the Reds plus 140, plus 145, wherever you can find it, and over eight and a half are both really good looks in that game. Okay. I actually kind of like that. I might, uh, I might do a little bit of a bet builder on this one. I might play – Reds plus one and a half, and then team total over two and a half. I can get that at minus 105. I think, yeah, I think that's pretty safe. Um, yeah, I mean, JP France has a 3.54 uh, ERA, but his FIP is 5.0. So, like, all of it, like, his analytics are awful. Like, I mean, they just scream, like, he's, he's due to get touched. Um, like, he's due to get hit pretty hard here over the next few weeks. So, um, I think that that's one that you can look at and say, all right, like, and the Reds have really been kind of hot uh, and they're kind of playing their hunt, like that division where nobody's good. Uh, that's a young team that probably sees an opportunity to play for something and uh, goes pretty hard these next few weeks. I think they're a bye team. Okay, They're one game out of first behind the Pirates as we speak. <laughs> I, have, I have seen a lot of people who bet Reds to win that division at like 20 to 1. And they feel pretty good about where it's at right now. Um, well, because your primary concern when you make that bet is probably St. Louis, but St. Louis yeah. is 15 games under and eight back now. So you kind of just figure that they may be done. Like maybe shut it down early. Yeah. And the Cubs, and the Cubs, I think, are going to be sellers at the deadline. Like they're only three and a half out and six games under. But like what happens to the Cubs when they get rid of Marcus Stroman and take a random AAA starter and replace? place the race like they probably aren't very good after that um so they're still a few few years away it feels like from being really really competitive um it does feel like it does feel like the brewers and the reds and then maybe the pirates one of those teams could really sneak up and um do something pretty cool the reds are in an awesome spot in that division for the next few years they should be able to take control of that division for a few years Okay, so I'm going to tell you on Reds, I'm going to do Reds plus one and a half with the over team total two and a half. I'm also going to play my favorite one today was another kind of like two teamer or two legger. 
I like the Marlins money line, but it's minus 155 with Sandy on the mound. So I'm going to take their team total over three and a half as well. And that gets me to minus 115 on that one. So I think, yeah, I, I do have, so I think that they're going to win tonight. I also just think Trevor Richards is, or not Trevor, Trevor Williams, not Trevor Richards. Richards pitches for the Blue Jays tomorrow. Um, Trevor Williams is just, that's not a dude that I love to back. I made the mistake of backing him in Miami a few weeks ago and regretted it by the bottom of the second. Um, so I think that's a good play. I do worry with Sandy, though, over the course of the remainder of the season, not necessarily tonight. Yeah. I almost feel like they pushed him so hard to win him that Cy Young last year that he's <laughs> almost like feeling like he's almost like feel it, like paying the price for it this season. And when you go and you look at like the guys who led the league in innings pitch last year, and then look at what their numbers look like this year. They're all collectively like not very good. So I'm wondering if Sandy maybe physically is paying the price for so many innings and being pushed so hard last year that you almost do worry a little bit about whether or not he's going to be as effective because he's still being priced. He's still being priced like the best, like one of the best five pitchers in baseball. And I don't know that he's going to be that at any point this year. Like his numbers, like, you know, I thought at first that he was just getting bad luck and that his analytics would tell me that he was a pitcher worth backing. And then I went and dug into it a few weeks ago, and it was like, no, not really, actually. He just hasn't been very good. So I do think that that's something to pay attention to the next few weeks. But I do think that spot is right tonight. I do think it's a Miami line. It's a really strong Miami figure. Okay, so let's cap it off. Uh Give me your U.S. Open winner play. The reason why I ask is because I'm I'm in shambles right now. Um, Eric Cole just lost his three ball on the final hole because oh, Shank birdied 18 in order to take it from him. So you know the one guy that I meant to bet that I didn't bet, and I don't have any idea what he's scoring right now. Um, that's why I'm going to look at the leaderboard to see if he's worth maybe the long shot play, or maybe I could get him back into the. Who is it? Uh, Cam Young. It was one that I had circled. He's not even (laughs) – he's below the cut line somewhere. He probably is getting killed. So so Cam Young right now, he's minus one for the day. He's T53. I'll be honest, one of my future bet plays for this tournament was Cam Young to miss the cut. So we are on different wavelengths when it comes to – So what did you say say he was for the tournament? Plus one. Oh, yeah. No, he's not winning. Um (laughs) I'll be honest, I, I kind of need him right now to slip back to to plus two, and then hopefully we can get some low scores in the afternoon and push him, push him out of this thing. So, Yeah, I mean, I think – so right now you can get Cam Smith, at least here. I'm not sure what you can get it out there, but you can get Cam Smith 40-1 to 1 sitting at three under, um, unless he's just like – yeah, he's still three under as far as I can see. And he's tied 10. Um, now, granted, he's three under and like almost done for the day, which is why he's priced the way he is. But if you think the course is going to continue to play play the way that it's playing and you think that maybe Xander and Ricky aren't going to shoot 62 again, like they're probably going to shoot more like one over, two over, then maybe Cam Smith's worth a, worth a dart. Um, you know, I hate, and I hate that you look like when I'm looking at stuff like that, like, I want guys who have kind of been there and done it before. Like, I would love to grab some Harris English 18 to 1, but then it's just kind of like, eh, that's not really a guy that strikes me as like, hey, I'm going to, you know, come from behind and win the U.S. Open. So, one guy that I did play this morning as a live bet, I played Victor Hovland. Yeah. 
I played him because he's that was 30, one that I looked at for a second too. Thirty nine to one. I think pre tournament he was fifteen to one. So, and given that he's going to have, I'm hoping that the scores improve in the afternoon. Like that, that's my um, big gamble here. I guess is that it's going to get easier in the afternoon. But at minus one, you go out and shoot a three under. You position yourself at minus four heading into the weekend. And I think Victor. He was a, he was right there at the PGA. He won the Memorial. He's definitely playing some good golf. So if I had to pick somebody right now to win the event, looking at the leaderboard where it's at, I would probably play. I'd probably play Xander to finally get his first major. But it's just because he's so far up there. I don't have a lot of faith in Clark long term. Don't have faith in English. Don't have faith in Bennett. DJ outside of the quad, he's actually played well today, but. I just I could see Xander finally getting it done, and I trust him over the next fifty-four way more than I would Ricky. I think Ricky's going to be a top ten finish, and I think he's worth a look there. But I just don't know if he's going to have enough to get it done. So, yeah, I hope Xander wins, man. I'm I'm he's one of my favorites as a as someone who watches it a little bit. Like I, it feels like he is really really good at being like the fourth place finisher at these things. And it would be nice to finally see him cross the finish line, especially. This isn't a shot at a guy like this, but a guy like Gary Woodland who hasn't been there a lot but has a U.S. Open, and you're like, man, guys like Xander sitting on zero and Gary Woodland sitting on one, it just it doesn't feel right. So so I'm hopeful for him, but uh, we'll see how it goes. But, Walker, I appreciate you hopping on the show today, man. Um, tell the folks at home where they can find your work. Um, so you can follow me on Twitter at WalkerBailey818. I'll probably be really, really emotionally tweeting through the Rangers-Jays game tonight. Um, and then just kind of check out everything at offballnetwork.com. I need to fire back up the best bets every day, just with between school and uh, school and then coaching and stuff. It got away from me a little bit, but finally with summer ball coming to a close next week, uh, where I'll have more time during the day, I'm hoping that I can get that back going all the way through the end of baseball season. Um, and then just kind of follow everybody at offballnetwork.com. Lots of good stuff coming. I know Mo and I are uh, around these college football schedule releases where field stormers is coming back. Uh, in the next couple of weeks at the latest. So that'll be fun. We'll be back at least once a week um, over there. And then I think he's working on also getting a sub stack set up where there's going to be a little bit of uh, a little bit of writing and stuff that'll also be on offballnetwork.com if you don't have sub stack uh, access. So just go and check everything out there. Make sure you follow, uh, follow all those people on Twitter. Make sure you follow Ken on Twitter at HedgePod. Um, yeah, I think that's it. I think I had everything. Awesome. Well, this is episode 199. We got big 200 coming up probably early next week. Um, really appreciate everyone uh, who listens into the show every single day. As I said, in shambles right now over Cole. Um, hopefully Cam Smith can close this out. He's got a three-shot cushion on DJ with three to go. Let's hope that he finishes strong. And we'll see you guys next time for the Competitive Hedge podcast. <laughs>